Welcome to Skim This. If you've tried to buy a house recently, it seems like actually closing on a place is harder than winning the lottery. Today, we're breaking down the wild ride that is the housing market, and we'll ask two experts, when are we going to get some relief? Also on the show, we've got an update on what's going on in Ukraine and where things stand after Ukraine accused Russia of committing serious war crimes. This is far beyond the code of conduct for the army of a major world power. So this is something where it is just undeniable. We'll also break down some of the week's biggest headlines, from Oklahoma's abortion ban to a new date you might want to add to your calendar if you've got student loans. And finally, to wind us down, we'll tell you why more Americans are hitting up an unexpected place to get some rest. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up... On this vote, the A's are 53, the nays are 47, and this nomination is confirmed. It wasn't just an ordinary day on Capitol Hill. Today, the Senate voted to confirm a new Supreme Court justice. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson will officially be the first Black woman to sit on the bench. All 50 Senate Democrats and three of their Republican colleagues voted to confirm Jackson, who will be sworn in after Justice Breyer retires at some point this summer. Jackson's confirmation fulfills a major campaign promise from President Joe Biden and also marks a historic moment in the country's history. Okay, next headline. The Oklahoma House voted overwhelmingly to approve legislation making performing an abortion illegal. Here's the context. Oklahoma lawmakers have approved a bill that would make almost all abortions illegal. The legislation outlaws abortions for every reason, except if there's a life-threatening medical emergency. Anyone who breaks the law, whether it's someone seeking an abortion or an abortion provider, could face felony charges, punishable by up to 10 years in prison and a $100,000 fine. It's important to point out that ever since Texas passed a similarly restrictive abortion law last year, people seeking abortions in the Lone Star State actually went to Oklahoma for those services. So this latest bill will not only affect people in Oklahoma, but also people in other states looking for abortion care. And on a national level, this bill is one of many restrictive abortion laws being debated by lawmakers across the country and it could take effect soon after the Supreme Court rules on their biggest abortion case in decades early this summer. Okay, next headline. The Biden administration will extend the pandemic-era freeze on those loan payments through August. If you're getting deja vu, you're not alone. This will be the seventh delay of payments since early in the pandemic. And it comes just a few weeks before the last extension was set to expire. The new date to add to your calendar is August 31st. But some Democrats want Biden to push out the date even further, arguing that a lot of Americans aren't prepared to resume payments amid rising inflation and borrowing costs. While others in his party are urging Biden to go a step further 
and cancel some of the $1.7 trillion Americans owe in federal loans. Whether that happens is still TBD. But for now, it looks like the White House is taking a page out of the old college playbook, asking for an extension on the assignment. Okay, let's get to our final headline. According to a new study, Instagram is failing to stop abusive messages on its platform. The Center for Countering Digital Hate did a study with five well-known women, where they went through thousands of their DMs. And the center found that Instagram failed to act on 90% of abuse sent in those messages, despite that abuse being reported to the platform. What kind of messages? We're talking about harassment, violent threats, and disturbing images. And while this report only looked at five women's accounts, most of us know this problem is bigger than that, and a lot of women feel unsafe on social media. Stepping back, the past few months have been pretty eye-opening, as we've learned more about how safe we actually are as we scroll on these apps. Instagram and its parent company Meta have faced allegations that their platforms prioritize profit over safety, and advocates have urged them to do more to protect users. Whether execs in Silicon Valley are actually listening remains to be seen. But one thing's for sure, another day, another mess for Mark Zuckerberg to try to clean up. Last weekend, we started seeing horrifying new images from on the ground in Ukraine. Russian forces pulled back from the areas around the capital of Kyiv and left behind the bodies of civilians. People Ukrainian officials say were killed by Russian soldiers. And independent reports from human rights groups confirmed that Ukrainians had been executed in the streets. In an interview on CBS's Face the Nation on Sunday, Ukrainian President Zelensky didn't mince words as he described what was going on in his country. Here's what he told CBS's Margaret Brennan with the help of his translator. This is genocide. The elimination of the whole nation and the people. We are the citizens of Ukraine. We have more than 100 nationalities. This is about the destruction and extermination of all these nationalities. Now, Western nations face even more pressure to do something, anything, to put a stop to the atrocities. This week, the U.S. announced more sanctions, targeting Russian banks and even Vladimir Putin's children. But some worry that sanctions haven't been effective so far. To get some context, we called up Margaret Brennan, moderator of Face the Nation and chief foreign affairs correspondent for CBS News, to ask her more about that interview with Zelensky and what might happen next in Ukraine. Margaret, thanks for joining us. You spoke with Ukrainian President Zelensky over the weekend. What did he tell you about the state of the war and apparent Russian war crimes? And how has our understanding of this war and the human toll changed? Well, I think President Zelensky was incredibly powerful in his language on Sunday morning because these images were so fresh and these facts on the ground were being revealed to the world in a way they really couldn't deny. 
These are credible reports of atrocities. It's Human Rights Watch. It is reporters, including CBS reporters on the ground, going to Busha outside Kiev and seeing men tied up, hands behind their back, shot execution style, seeing mass graves. This is no longer just painted as a war is bloody. This is far beyond the code of conduct for the army of a major world power and what has become the standard of norms. So this is something where it is just undeniable. And President Zelensky really was passionate about that on Sunday morning, saying flat out in his view, this is an attempt to exterminate his people, an attempt at genocide as he sees it. He doesn't see this as just misbehaving soldiers who went a little too far. He sees this as intentional and premeditated. And that does change the framing of how the world understands what's going on. It makes it harder Mm -hmm. for countries to choose not to pick a side. With all this evidence that we're starting to see, what does that tell us about Putin's mindset as this war continues? It's just six weeks or so into this war. This isn't this long, drawn-out conflict of soldiers getting wrapped up in the moment, as analyst Fiona Hill framed it to me, who served in the National Security Council under President Trump. She said this either is generals losing command and control Mm -hmm. six weeks in, which obviously isn't good and underscores a lot, or it's sanctioned behavior. That's frightening. And it indicates in the characterization of what these soldiers are being told to do that these things are framed in a dehumanizing way, which indicates not necessarily the mindset of someone who you could sit across from and negotiate as, if not equals in power, then at least have a common humanity in a negotiation. If Russia is indeed carrying out what Ukraine alleges, which is setting up camps, separating children from parents, moving them into Russian territory, this is something that goes far beyond a conflict over territory. It becomes about identity, and it does start to raise those arguments and questions about intent. And intent is what you need to prove whether it's genocide or not. Is it intended to destroy a culture and a national identity? And so, you know, we heard Jake Sullivan, the president's national security advisor, say we're not there yet, but we're still collecting evidence. They're not taking that off the table. And as we think about previous wars where similar atrocities have been committed What actually happens when an accusation like this is made in the international community? What are the next steps? I think the harsh reality is it comes down to the matter of will, will to stop it, will to recognize it. The United States has only recognized formally a genocide eight times in American history, one of them just a few weeks ago, where the United Mm -hmm. States said after a lengthy review that one was being carried out in Burma or Myanmar against Muslim minorities. The Biden and the Trump administration both recognize that China is carrying out one in terms of setting up camps for Muslim minorities in China. So these things are continuing to happen in terms of attempts to destroy culture. And I think the fact that this is happening in a major European capital is mind-blowing, certainly to European leaders. This is in their face. It is undeniable. It is very hard for them to stand up and say, never again each year with a Holocaust Remembrance Day and then say, but here's why we're not acting to stop what could be an attempt here to carry out mass atrocities in an intentional way. This is really, I think, pressing and testing the value system of the West and 
at the end of the day, Vladimir Putin has a trump card that is thousands of nuclear warheads, and that is keeping the West from directly intervening. And on that note, what are you anticipating seeing in terms of countries putting more pressure on Russia? What's left to do before military intervention? Is there anything? This is where it just becomes about this slow strangulation of the Russian economy while it's a slow bleed of the Ukrainian people. And the Biden administration has been pressed on this, but they say over time they do believe that this will eventually cause such internal problems within the Russian state for Vladimir Putin that maybe it'll change his calculus. But they also recognize that the facts on the battlefield will dictate the terms at the negotiating table that this is about trying to make the Ukrainian negotiating position stronger going into any potential peace talks. And really, these peace talks are just hypothetical at this point. And what is Zelensky asking the international community for? What kind of aid is he looking for? Well, you know, Secretary Blinken and other foreign secretaries are meeting at NATO in Brussels to talk about this. Volodymyr Zelensky is asking for Soviet-era equipment because that's what his military is trained on. It's hard to get trained up in a short period of time on American-made equipment and systems. So he's looking for equipment that can be just dropped into a system and usable. There are Eastern European countries who have it, but those countries want the American equipment to come in and replace the Soviet equipment they're giving up. And then you have NATO saying, officially, NATO doesn't want to transfer weapons because they don't want to engage in the conflict directly. There's a school of thought that argues Vladimir Putin already thinks he's at war with NATO and the United States. So just, you know, tip the scales in the favor of the Ukrainians faster. But that's the diplomatic dance and that's the negotiating that has to happen. Based on your conversation with Zelensky over the weekend, how are you thinking about where this conflict is going or how it could end? I thought President Zelensky was very detailed for the first time on Sunday in laying out how he wanted things to go. He showed some willingness to negotiate on giving up some territory. I'm sure he wouldn't say that explicitly, but the way he phrased things, go back to the February 24th border, suggests that. But at what point is the rest of Europe confident enough that Russia will be stopped in its tracks? How do you guarantee that? President Zelensky's asking President Biden for some security guarantees and said he doesn't trust paper anymore, which was a reference to the United States not making good, in his view, on assurances that were given back in 1994 to help protect Ukraine. So there's a whole other negotiation that has to happen between Ukraine and Europe and the United States to get to a place where they can sit across from Russia and say, here's what we're going to do, and here's why you can never do what you're doing now ever again, because this is what we'll do to stop you. Margaret Brennan, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Last week, the Federal Reserve of Dallas said something that made us do a double take. Economists with the Federal Reserve issued an unsettling warning to millions of potential home buyers. The U.S. is starting to see signs of a housing bubble. Yikes, this comes as home buyers deal with rising prices. Wait a second, that sounds really concerning. Because, as a reminder, a housing bubble is when property prices rise at an alarming or unsustainable rate. So how worried do we need to be? Today, we're going to break down what's going on in the housing market by answering three questions. 
what's causing economists to be concerned, what's different about the market now than during the last housing crisis, and what should we look out for next? Let's start with that first question. What's ringing alarm bells here? The main cause of concern is high prices. If you or anyone you know has tried to buy a house lately, you may have noticed that prices are, and we're gonna use a technical term here, out of control, thanks to a lot of first-time home buyers. Really, it comes down to demographics. So you have the largest generation, the millennial generation, aging into their prime home buying years. And that's really what's driving this demographic demand, this demand for housing. That's Odetta Kushi, the deputy chief economist for First American Financial Corporation, a company that provides insurance for buyers and sellers. So increasing demand against limited supply, that's Econ 101 for house price growth. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. And it turns out we've been running out of supply for a while, according to Nicole Bichot, an economist with Zillow. We have very limited supply, supply that's been constricted going back to the end of the Great Recession. We had home builders stop building at the same level that they had been. Real estate was seen as a really risky investment. Nobody knew really what the future of that market was gonna look like. And so we had this 15 year gap where builders were not building at the level that they needed to. And that's catching up to us now. If you're thinking, why don't we just build new properties? Home builders are working on it. But the pandemic hasn't made that process easy. Between supply chain issues and labor shortages disrupting construction timelines. So it's been a supply and demand perfect storm, causing prices to jump and economists to start taking notes. And that brings us to our next question. How concerned do we need to be that this is going to be a repeat of the last housing crisis? According to Kushi, the housing market now is really different than it was 15 years ago. And that's a good thing. We all still bear scars from the Great Recession still, and it's no secret that that housing played a central role in the Great Recession. We all suffer from some recency bias, and we're kind of quick to assume that history will repeat itself. However, the housing market today is fundamentally different from the housing market during the previous housing boom. You know, household balance sheets are in better shape. We don't have excessive borrowing that's fueling this housing market boom. Not to mention, sketchy lending practices that caused the last housing crash aren't really a thing anymore. So the chief differences in the market, you know, 2006 to 2008 was led by excess credit, getting higher mortgage balances than people should have been getting. We also have much tighter and stronger lending practices now. The mortgage products people are buying are, by and large, you know, 30-year fixed-rate mortgages, where in 2006, people were getting, you know, these adjustable-rate mortgages that were really putting them in, in tricky positions, you know, later down the road. To skim it, economists aren't worried about people not being able to afford their existing homes, like what happened around 2008, and are more worried about people being priced out of buying a home to begin with. Which brings us to our third question. What can we expect to see in the coming months? Experts say prices are probably going to stay high and mortgage rates are also going to keep going up. This week, mortgage rates hit 5% for the first time in four years. And rising rates can actually help balance out supply and demand. As house prices continue to grow alongside rising mortgage rates, we should see some buyers pull back from the market and eventually causing house prices to moderate. Not crash, um, we should be careful there, not crash, but moderate. So still growing, but at a slower pace. 
If you're looking for a house right now and trying to navigate this crazy market, our experts have some advice for you. The first thing in today's market is getting your financial situation in order, understanding your budget, so getting pre-approved for a mortgage and really knowing what that top line price is gonna be, and then shopping underneath that level. You're gonna be facing bidding wars in today's market. So really staying under that gives you more wiggle room to really keep up with how fast things are changing. As for some other best practices for first-time buyers, Mortgage rates can vary dramatically, and so you want to make sure that you talk to a couple of different places to make sure that you get the lowest mortgage rate possible. And also for potential first-time home buyers, I think there's this idea that you need 20% down to be able to buy a home, and that's just not the case. You can buy a home with 5% down, with 10% down. And oftentimes, the largest hurdle to home ownership for a potential first-time home buyer is that down payment. And so knowing and being armed with the information that you can put down less than 20%, I think is, is really important. And just always take into consideration that buying a home has maintenance costs. So factor for that when you're thinking about that monthly payment and how much you can afford to buy. For more tips on buying a home in a crowded market, head to theskim.com slash money. We'll also leave a link to our guide in our show notes. Over the past few months, we've heard a lot about labor shortages. Restaurants, hotels, and retailers can't seem to fill open roles. But there's another labor shortage that started to make headlines. Couples and singles looking to use a surrogate to expand their family can't seem to find anyone. To understand what's going on, we spoke with two board-certified OBGYNs. First, we'll hear from Dr. Natalie Crawford, who told us we need to start with the basics. So the word surrogacy can mean a lot of different things. Officially, it is when somebody carries a baby when somebody else is going to be the intended parent. However, what we tend to use in the medical field is a term actually called gestational carrier. A gestational carrier is somebody who gestates or carries the baby that is not genetically there. So genetically is somebody else's. The reasons to need a surrogate can be really diverse. One of the most common reasons is failure to be able to get pregnant on your own. There's also having other medical conditions which could make pregnancy complicated. So a prior history of having cancer yourself, having certain heart conditions or things that may make it dangerous for you to be pregnant. Or if you're in a same-sex male couple, you obviously need a surrogate in order to help you fulfill your family that way. The process of finding a carrier can be long and complicated. Basically, you could either have a friend, family member, or acquaintance be your carrier, or you could use an agency to facilitate the process. Then it's time to draw up legal contracts that regulate what the carrier can and can't do, who's attending medical appointments, and other things that need to be worked out in advance. Next, the carrier needs to get impregnated through IVF, a medical procedure in which doctors create an embryo outside of the body. As you've probably guessed by now, all these steps can be really expensive. In order to use a surrogate, you have to go through IVF with your own eggs. That process alone is gonna be on average about $25,000. Okay, so that's base cost. Then you're going to have agency-based carriers. Usually you're gonna get somewhere between thirty dollars to $70,000, depending on the circumstances, the contract, 
and what is else going into it when it comes to medical care, maternity clothes, other contractual obligations. So I have not seen anybody go through an agency for a surrogate spending less than $50,000. And typically it's much more than that. As legal fees and trips to the doctor's office start to add up, Dr. Lucky Seacon told us going through this process can also be emotional, especially because using carriers is still stigmatized. I think there definitely is stigma in society. I think there's a lot of misconceptions in the way that surrogacy and gestational carriers are portrayed, especially cases that are really sensationalized in the media, like celebrities that used gestational carriers. There's this automatic assumption that using a gestational carrier might be easy street. It might be a way to bypass needing to do the hard work of carrying a pregnancy, that this is just a luxury for people that don't want to gain pregnancy weight. I think that there's just a lack of information or understanding of infertility and the true medical reasons why people resort to using a gestational carrier. It's important to note there's no federal law governing surrogacy, and paying a gestational carrier isn't legal in all 50 states. Nebraska, Michigan, and Louisiana still outlaw paid carriers, while New York State only made it legal to use a carrier last year. The reasons for banning the practice are varied and kind of ambiguous, and a lot of people argue outdated. So finding a surrogate was already a challenge, and now it's become even more complex, in large part because there's a shortage of carriers. So what's causing this? Dr. Crawford told us, like a lot of the labor shortages we've seen in other industries, COVID has had a serious impact here. If you're already overwhelmed taking care of your own children, managing work responsibilities, it's really hard to add a pregnancy to that. And I think that there are definitely huge variations in COVID requirements and contracts that I think for a while really put people at a pause. Meaning if you didn't want to get vaccinated, but your intended parents wanted you to, how did you feel about that? Besides potential carriers feeling exhausted or not agreeing to follow isolation or vaccination requirements, it's also a risky time to be pregnant. The fact that being pregnant and getting COVID has a significantly higher mortality rate has made people feel like that risk-benefit ratio, you know, the financial benefit or the ability to help another couple grow their family, as amazing as that is, carriers love being able to help other, other families, but that the risk of what if I get COVID and I don't make it and I can't support my own family is just too great right now. COVID has also impacted travel. Before the pandemic, a lot of Americans chose carriers who actually lived abroad. But when borders shut down and hopping on a plane became difficult, more intended parents started looking for carriers here at home, creating more demand and less supply. We'll also note, when intended parents do choose a carrier abroad, that can add even more uncertainty into an already stressful process. I think. You know, the the harrowing tales of people who have newborns that are trapped in Ukraine and surrogates who are, you know, in a bunker right now. I mean, all of that is just so frightening um, and terrifying. And I think this is just something that is making people think twice 
about doing this internationally and maybe, you know, wanting to seek this out more, more so dom- domestically. Now that we understand what's causing this shortage, what are the long-term impacts here? Anytime there's a shortage, you are going to see that prices start to go up, which creates a huge disparity in who can afford to seek this care in order to have a family. I think that definitely, you know, the LGBT community and male-male couples specifically are going to be highly impacted because every one of them is going to need a carrier in order to conceive a family. And so that's going to be a huge group of people that's going to be unfairly discriminated against by kind of this situation. But certainly anybody who's experiencing a really hard time, has medical complications, uterine issues, I mean, they're all going to be put into the same boat. So it definitely is a true problem. If you've been considering using a carrier in your own family planning journey, Dr. Seacon has some advice. I think what you can take away from this is that it's better to be proactive and, you know, start the conversation early because it might take a little bit longer. But I don't think it's something that's going to be prohibitive to your ability to do it. I think it's all about, you know, being informed. And there's a lot more advocacy around this. There are different organizations that are seeking to make the process more transparent and match intended parents with gestational carriers. So I think there's a lot more resources surrounding this now than ever before. And I think if you just arm yourself with information and support and talk to your fertility clinic, they can help steer you in the right direction. When was the last time you had a moment to just chill out? If it's been a while, you're not alone. Stress levels are high for Americans across the board. Normally, when we think of relaxing, we think of our beds, the couch, maybe even a spa. But recently, more Americans are going somewhere unexpected to get some R&R, the gym. Wait, what? For most of us, when we think of going to the gym, we picture loud music, sweaty people, and intense workouts. Not exactly a serene environment. But that's starting to change. According to the Wall Street Journal, gyms around the U.S. are seeing an increased demand for classes with a gentler tone. Think less eye of the tiger, more soothing meditation music. According to the journal, the gym chain 24-hour fitness increased the number of recovery classes it offered by 33% since last summer. And the gym crunch added rest and recover spaces to six locations, with plans for expansion later this year. And according to Amber McMillan, Senior Vice President of Fitness and Weight Loss at Lifetime Fitness, people are rushing to sign up. Those classes are packed. We're definitely seeing the surge in our member base really craving the opportunity to unwind coming out of the pandemic. I mean, we have been through so much. We definitely know it is a time where we have really realized the importance of health. And that's not just your physical health, but your mental health. We should also note these classes have science backing them up. 
More restful fitness classes help your body heal from intense exercise. For your brain, meditation and rest can help anxiety and stress levels stay low, even if it's just stretching on the floor. Recovery is where you get all the results. From a physiology standpoint, your recovery days are where you're actually repairing and rebuilding, and it's an extremely critical component. The mental health side of this equation is bigger now than it's ever been. We definitely can see that it can lower your heart rate. It can lower your blood pressure. We see health markers improve drastically by just having this as an outlet. Thanks to increased demand, Lifetime has had to create wait lists for members to use their rest and recovery services, and they're expanding the option to even more of their clubs this year. Stepping back, the pandemic has made us rethink what it means to take care of ourselves. And that doesn't always mean paying for a gym membership. It could just be taking five minutes in the morning to take some deep breaths before that first cup of coffee. But if you need a little more structure in order to let yourself truly chill out, check out your gym's class schedule. There might be one where you can picture yourself floating on a cloud, breathing deeply, letting all of your worries melt away. Actually, I'll leave that to the instructors. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston. We had additional help this week from Sajine Coriellis. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from the Skim, 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us. Listener.